Welcome to Rollin' Bones, the osteopathic podcast. I'm your host, Dr. James, along with Dr. Dante. We are back for more, and uh, we are going to talk about how our sedentary life is killing us. Now, we have to understand that we're living longer than we ever have, but you could make an argument that we're living sicker than we ever have in many cases. And now we're living into our 70s and 80s, and we're seeing a lot of chronic illness that was not common in earlier centuries. Granted that the increased lifespan is due to a number of factors like baby surviving birth, mother surviving birth. We're able to save lives that would have been lost to infection, to trauma and whatnot. But man, it's tough to see a lot of patients. And I have a lot of patients come into the office that they're what we call decompensated. Their body's weak and they're suffering because of that weakness. Right. You have a much kinder word for that um, than, than I learned. There was this book called The House of God. Because right back yes, to that that's turf. Yes, that medical classic. Yeah. The Every House doctor of, should read it. Yeah. The House of God is a, is a book written about essentially the first year or so as a physician and all the things you see in that... Yeah, um, residency and whatnot. Right, in mm-hmm. that insanely intense environment. And there was a really strange apt acronym that was used almost as a code word for a type of patient. Do you remember it by any chance? I don't remember. You it was Honda. Oh, that's right. Yeah, Honda. So it's hypertensive, obese, non-compliant, diabetic, adults. And if some folks were mean about it, they'd say alcoholic on top of it. Yes, so yes. In in this book, they'd be like, yeah, we have a Honda in like ER bed one or something like that. Harsh terminology, harsh idea, completely disrespectful to the human, but that was the point. The idea was that these physicians got so burnt out, so taxed and tried by their time in this almost war zone like medical world that people stopped being people they became hondas they were fubars. dehumanized exactly yeah, yeah for sure right fubars one you'd know yes yeah yeah <laughs> we're not going to explain that yeah, one we'll, we'll leave that one well enough alone too exactly uh, and it's 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 difficult because we have been so utterly successful in changing how long people live we've added to quantity of life but where we've struggled as a society, and we're talking medical uh, society as well as society as a whole, is adding to quality of life. Right. We can add 20 years onto someone's lifespan, but is that a good 20 years or is that a 20 years of suffering? That's a difficult one. Right, and it's a good problem to have. It is. I mean, it, it really is a good yeah, problem. Yeah, I mean, it's better that we're living to 80 rather than dying at 35 of the plague or being shot and then dying of infection, for sure. Exactly. We basically traded off, like, what? There's there's four horsemen for the apocalypse? Yeah. We have a plague, right? Right. We basically told plague to take a nap, and then when plague rode off away, all of a sudden, in like instead of a horse, it's like a panda or something, comes in sloth. For the most part. For the most part. Right. And I'll take sloth over plague any day, because plague is kind of active and scary and like bubonic and whatnot. Sloth is a sloth. You can like run away if you really have to. Yeah, Sid the Sloth, right? Right. They do this every year. Right. <laughs> so... We say everything in this episode knowing that this is meant to take what we already have to a better place. It's not that I don't want to paint this uh, terrible image of current medicine because, look, what the modern medicine thing does is phenomenal at saving lives. It does. It expands and extends the life's lives significantly. Right. I myself would definitely be dead by now if not for modern medicine because my eyes are crap. I need glasses. And I blew my ankle once upon a time, and I needed that surgery. If not for those things, I'm pretty much useless. Right. So 
The arguments we're presenting, the ideas that we're articulating, are not to say that modern medicine is worthless. That is explicitly not the position here. But there's this idea that the same things that made us capable of living longer, by virtue of the things that make us live longer, also mitigated the things that we need to do to keep ourselves strong. We don't have to be as strong as we used to be. And because of that, we get to be weak. We have the privilege of being weak. The trade-off is, if so many of us are this sick, that happens on the company dime. When right. I say the company dime, right. I mean the country dime. There's taxpayer side, dime, because exactly. the taxpayers foot the bill for many of these uh, chronic conditions through the Medicare services right. that we offer. And at some point, if so many of us are fat, sick, and nearly dead, that's a movie. What ends up <laughs> yes, happening is. is, who's gonna do the work? Who's gonna do the labor? Once upon a time, relatively recently, the I believe it was actually RDOD considered the current obesity epidemic an issue of national security. What does that mean? That means that there are so many individuals who cannot pass the basic criteria for military service in this country that we might not have enough people to draw from in case things went down. Well, and at one point in time, I was active duty in the Air Force, and uh, one of our major issues was making sure our airmen were battle ready, and that included physical fitness. Right. Making sure they were exercising and eating well and making sure that they were, from a physical standpoint, ready to go up into the sky or provide security or maintain aircraft to do all of the things that were physically required to fight and win. But you guys are just pilots. You don't have to be fit, don't right? Well, yeah, because we're the chair force. That's what they all say. Exactly. <laughs> but uh, the first time you feel meaningful G-forces upon your body you begin to appreciate the level of cardiovascular health you need to be able to withstand. You better be physically fit. Exactly. You better be physically fit for that. But that's that's talking at the level of like big statecraft and whatnot. Let's talk about individuals. Look, it's one thing to say you can live to 86, 87, right? Right. But if your last 40 years of life, as in the second half of your life, is spent, mm -hmm. what, seeing a doctor every three months, every six months maybe because you need refills in your meds because without those meds you're going to die. Right. I mean, good for you, you're alive, but if you need somebody else's drug in order for you to live, that makes you hooked, that makes you dependent. And if you're good with that, be my guest. However, this is not the, this is not the message for you. This is the idea that there's a way to be free of us. Ultimately, the thing that makes me so proud to do the osteopathic medicine thing is I'm teaching my patients how to never need me again. Which is an interesting thing. I tell that to my patients all the time. I'm, my goal is to get you to not need me, which is terrible business, but great for my patients. And it comes to mind, uh, brings to mind a great man I once knew who did pass away in his 80s. He once told me that he didn't want to die in a rocking chair. What did that mean? It meant that he was physically and mentally active, and he wanted to remain that way until he died. Um, he wanted to be up and about rather than incapacitated in his later years. Now, granted, not everyone has that blessing because of various injuries or genetics or, or a number of other factors. But we do know that we have a significant influence in how our health runs its course through our lives. And that's more what we're talking about today. Right. So the challenge in this episode, the question to answer is, if osteopathic medicine is so good, why are we still so sick? The collective we. Why are our patients so sick if all it takes is to just get up and move right? Or if something's off, get somebody to put a bone back or move the fascia or whatever it happens to be. Why are my hands, why are your hands not good enough to make everything just better? 
We're witches, aren't we? Well, right, and that that's a very good question. And it comes to it comes to the environment in which we find ourselves. So if I have someone come in and their shoulder is sore because of their posture at work, they're a, a computer jockey, you know, there's a desk jockey, they're, they're sitting all day and their shoulders are slumped forward. And they come in to me and I work on them and their shoulder feels great. But then they go back to work and they don't change their posture. They don't get up every 20 or 30 minutes. They still work at that computer. They don't exercise to rebalance the, the tension in the system. Guess what's gonna happen? It all goes back to nothing. It's all gonna go back to nothing. And that's that's one of the keys. Some some of the uh, argument that we've we've heard in the past uh, about osteopathic medicine is is the treatments don't always fix things permanently, and those arguments ignore the idea that there is an environmental influence on our patients. That if we don't change their environment, if they don't change their environment, if they don't make those choices to change what they're doing, then yes. They're gonna have a bad time. They're gonna have a bad time, and it's going to come back. And then they're gonna be frustrated. Well, doc, it worked for a couple of weeks, but it just came back. Why did it just come back? Because reasons. So one of the things, it doesn't get appreciated as much. Perhaps it's because we do not as good of a job as we could, making it emphasized. The idea wasn't that osteopathic philosophy is our hands make things better. That's like a really low-level, low-resolution articulation of the field, right? right? Osteopaths or the hand docs. Yeah, we're the guys who put our hands on you and you, you feel better for a while. Right, and there's some truth to that, but it's missing out a very important piece. When this mode of treating, when this mode of healing was conceptualized, it was against the backdrop of movement and the diet thing. Remember, I was there's this idea that ATs still believe that if you moved well, if you ate sparingly, but sufficiently and healthily, then you wouldn't need us much. But when you needed us, then our hands were there. Mm-hmm. Notice. You'd be in good hands. There's a lot of words before you're in good hands, right? Yes. And at the yes. end clause, right? The little rider at the end and the fine print is, and then we got hands for you. Then we got you. But what about everything behind that? I feel like we've, as a, as a class, as a type of uh, physician, as a type of healer, have downplayed, relatively speaking, the environmental component. And that's not to say that we don't say it. We say it. You got to move. You got to eat right and all that stuff. But how many of us, one, truly know what that means and how to do it, two, have the wherewithal to counsel somebody to do it? Because imagine what your patients, our patients will be 30s, 40s, 40s, 50s, 50s, 60s, middle age plus. Yeah, mostly middle age. A few in their 20s, but mostly middle age. Right. Unless we have high-performing folks, we typically don't get folks in their teenage years because they're pretty much healthy no matter what they do as far as they're concerned. Not necessarily the case, by the way, but as far as they know. Yeah. But by the time we get folks, there's things to do. And then patient comes in, hey, I got some diabetes going on. What can I do? And I'm like, hey, you can fix it if you change up your diet. And that's not a small thing to say. And and that's a difficult thing because what patients will sometimes do, not every patient, but sometimes they will, they'll look at you and say, well, you just got to fix me, doc. And so when you, when you give them advice to change what they're doing at home, that's difficult. We've also done as physicians, and I'm not talking about osteopathic versus allopathic. I'm talking about physicians in general. Across the board. Across the board. We've done a disservice to our patients in the past by training them to rely on medications to change things because it's easy to give a pill. 
you know, when, when a patient comes into my office and says, I want to lose some weight, one of the first things they do is, what kind of pill can you give me for uh, that? Have some fentramine. Yes, yes. Any number of uh, long-name pills, well, I've got a pill for that, and that's what we've done in the past. Right. We've taken the responsibility away from the patient and placed it on our shoulders, like, I'll take care of you. I'll give you all of the medications. This will fix this. And we have, by taking away responsibility from patients, we've made them weak. Right. There's this really, it sounds like it's a cruel idea, but if you, if you kind of take it in whole, it makes sense. In mm -hmm. um, geriatric medicine, that if you're, if you're an, you know, an aide, a nurse, a physician, whatever, working in a nursing home, you don't ever do anything for the resident that they could do themselves. So if they don't right. need help, you do not offer help. And you're like, oh, but, you know, grandpa or whatever, he's, he's struggling. Help him do it. And you're like, no, because every time you help him do that or her do that, you rob them of their, of their power to do that again. And, and you rob them of the joy of being able to do it. Right. You know, I think about it from a parental standpoint. We're both parents. When our kids are capable of do so, doing something, we should let them do it. I, I have a nine-year-old who just made his very first cookie recipe by himself. He, he took the recipe that I gave him and he altered it and he made his own cookies. And it was the most amazing experience. And guess what? They turned out pretty good. You mean he didn't just Wikipedia like, you know, top 10 recipes on BuzzFeed or something like that? Exactly. He came up with his own recipe. I'm aware you don't Wikipedia BuzzFeed. You just bear with me on this yeah. one. <laughs> <laughs> and the reward for him was like, yeah, I made cookies. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It was cool. It gave him confidence that he could do it again. He now has the skill to make cookies. Right. And that's a skill that you should always have. Right. <laughs> There's... um. There's a concern that the way we practice medicine as a collective, again, not DOs or MDs, I'm talking about the whole lot of us, by virtue of how we manage our patients, notice even the fact that we use the word manage, right. robs the patient of the ability to not need us. So we say we need to respect patient autonomy. What does that actually mean? Because autonomy in the most basic level is something like, I'm going to trust your decision to do or not do what I recommend. But honestly, I want to take that to the next level. I want you to get to the point where you get to make your own shots and the options that you're making are valid to make you not need me. I talk to my patients about graduation. Like I intend them to graduate from me, which is very different from saying you're healed. It's you don't need me anymore, which is a different sentence. Well, we've even, we've even developed terminology that w when a patient doesn't uh, follow our recommendations, what do we say? Non-compliant. Non-compliant, which puts us in a paternal role. Right. When in reality, I prefer non-adherent, meaning they've made an active choice not to adhere to what I recommend, but that they didn't have to. Right. They're not non-compliant, they're non-adherent. That's a huge difference. Right. Because, you know, the non-compliance, we use compliance with, how you say it? When law enforcement is doing their thing, they say stop resisting. Right. That's what I'm getting comply, at. With comply with the law. Comply right. with my orders. Yeah. This is a different kind of relationship. And it's not that that other relationship is inappropriate. It's that for the relationship a physician is supposed to have to a, a patient, this is not a thing where we're barking orders at them. This is supposed to be a partnership, right? Right. Uh, and a patient really is coming to me to work with me and see what my knowledge can do to help them achieve health. And the argument I have is that the way we are as a collective right now makes it so that our patients are, one, underprepared to do that, Right. And two, we are underprepared to teach them how to do that. Well, and unfortunately, our current environment of seeing patients is so truncated that we 
generally don't have the time in our schedule to actually sit down with patients and work with them through all of these complexities that are that we're finding as we're living longer so our our health conditions are more complex we don't we don't have the time to do that i mean humans are complicated that's that's a thing that's what makes us humans right so what happens here the osteopathic thing is this idea that nature is health but we're unhealthy so why are we unhealthy we're saying that the environment itself has become the problem what does that mean in the context of what we're talking about we're talking about Honestly, modernity. We want yeah. to call our shot very precisely. We're not yes. saying modernity kills you, but there's a difference between living long and being well. Modernity, in its machinations to make you live long, kind of undermines the things you need to do to stay well. What does that mean? That means that, yeah, no, you need your doctor to manage you. You don't necessarily get well. You don't heal yourself. Right. You, um, you live in a way that's convenient, not necessarily... It's a word we don't really use much, but I like this word very much, noble. Right. Noble, uh, the reason I like noble is because it's this idea of incorruptible. This idea of, um, it's not perfect. Perfect is different. It's idea that the way you're living does not corrode. And I like the corrosion idea because we talk about iron and rust and right. all that type of stuff. Weakening through rust and oxidation. Exactly. A and from a medical standpoint, oxidative stress is huge. Exactly. But we're not going to go into it. It's a multi-level metaphor is what I'm getting yes, at. Yes, yes. But... The thing that is so beautiful about osteopathic medicine, that I appreciate at least, I don't know where everybody else comes from, but hey, let's be honest, my job is to teach people now, so I kind of get to push well, the, this on the, folks. the Latin root for doctor is teacher, so we should be teaching as much as we're treating. We're both healers and teachers. There's that a reason I call it graduation. That's right. But there's this idea that if we do the osteopathic thing to our best ability, we teach our patients how to live nobly. Right. and noble in this context, meaning incorruptible, uncorrodable, in a way that their parts will not degrade in a way that is more rapid than they ought to be, because, look, we're all going to die. Yeah, that's, that's inevitable. Right. I wish we could live forever, but we would know what would happen if that if we lived forever in our current state. Cylons. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, but <laughs> or how did we... Right. Cylons. I'm, I'm okay, with Cylons. Okay, we'll go with Cylons. But we've lost that. The reason we have to teach it is because we've lost it, and the weird multi-episode argument that we're making with this idea, because honestly, this episode is baked into episodes this one and really, two. Yeah, part right? three. We're, we're working on part three here. Right. There's this idea that we are not as strong as we think we are. There's this idea that uh, our bodies, our lives are cursed in the biblical sense, actually. Right. And because it's frail. Right. Because it's cursed, we just need to hope for the next best thing in the next life. Or... Uh, we need the heroics of modern medicine to make us live. There's this beautifully painful quote. I don't read too many quotes, but eh, this season I seem to be doing it. Let's do it. This is guy Clifton Mead, or he's a physician. Um, he says, nothing has changed so much in the healthcare system over the past 20 years as the public's perception of its own health. The change amounts to a loss of confidence in the human form. The general belief these days seems to be that the body is fundamentally flawed subject to disintegration at any moment, always on the verge of mortal disease, always in need of continual monitoring and support by healthcare professionals. This is a new phenomenon in our society. He's commenting on medicine in the 1970s, by the way. And I'd like to say much has changed since then, but I'd have to come to the conclusion that not much has changed as much as we'd like to. Now, that being said, there has become a greater awareness of the necessity of physical activity in our lives, but we're just, 
we're not doing it as much as we, we could. We've talked at some length in the past about how automation has taken us away from our physical connection to the earth. And the digital age has seen some um, acceleration of this disconnect. Uh, we become more connected through our social media and digital mediums, but we become less connected with our bodies as we sit at the computers more. Right. There's a Jungian idea that I really enjoyed. Um, Carl Jung being this really, really strange dope. I mean, I like the dude, but there's yeah, reasons why yeah, people don't. <laughs> um, he has his proponents and he has his critics for sure. Right, right. But he has this idea of uh, spirits that only, like people who only exist in the air, people who are so up in the realm of fancy and thought and things that are at a technical level not real, the digital thing, so on and so right. forth. You mean like commentators on, on Facebook and uh, Instagram? I mean, a good rage post here and there. <laughs> yeah, right. But because they're so... Not connected with reality. Right, because they're so bound to that other world, they forget about their flesh and blood. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean that in like the family. I mean their own flesh and blood. Their bodies become nothing if not the chassis for their mind. That's different from saying that their mind and body are connected. And because their mind and body are connected, hey, I'm good to go if my mind's good, right? I'm a smart dude. I can do whatever I want. I got some diabetes. It's okay. It doesn't stop me from doing what I want to do. But then it does eventually. We just don't realize it. Exactly. I, I'm, uh, I'm afraid that uh, the Pixar movie Wally is a very prescient regarding that, where people become so um, reliant on technology that they can no longer rely on their bodies anymore to even move them. They have to sit on these floating hover carts and uh, move themselves about electronically um, rather than using their legs. And, and it's, it's sad to see people become less able to rely on their bodies. Right. Because, look, our bodies are, our bodies were made to struggle. At the end of the day, uh, we, and this is, goes back to that, we are part of the world just like any other creature thing. Right. Yes, there's a, we can bind to the divine and so on and so forth, but here's the thing. To know of the divine does not mean you must forsake the flesh. You know, what's interesting about how our body is designed. If you you read into some of the running literature out there, the suggestion is the human body is very singular in the animal world in that we have sweat glands that allow us to continue to run even though we're trying to give off heat. And there is some suggestion that our ability to run allowed us to generate a bigger brain because then at some point we could run down animals that were significantly faster than us because we could run longer distances than they can. Right. And we continue to just chase them until they die of exhaustion. So, Whereas we would just continue to sweat, but we right. continue to run. We've almost lost that ability now ex- with exception of elite uh, marathon runners exactly. because we don't work as a community to run down our prey anymore. Like in the, as far as the animal kingdom is concerned, like, look, we're recording this just after Halloween, so this is fresh in my head. Think of that weird shrill note you hear in a horror movie, and mm-hmm. every time you turn a corner, the bad guy's like, right, like there. right there with a big old knife. And then you run away, move to the next scene, and then he's right there again, and again, and again, until everybody's dead because the movie's over. <laughs> We're the no monster in that movie. No one's left to die. <laughs> Here's a fun fact. Unless you're going to be a high-performing and very, very specialized athlete, it doesn't actually matter what kind of movement you do. 
As long as it doesn't hurt you, you can kind of do whatever you want, as long as it fulfills certain basic criteria. There are only so many fundamental movements that a human body needs in order to maintain its parts. I'm going to list them right now because I like you guys and I want you guys to know stuff. We have squat, hinge, push, pull, and carry. As long as your day-to-day -day life tends to have those five motions in good dosing, you're pretty much alright. Now we're going to juxtapose what Dr. Meter said with something from Dr. Still. He said, I decided that the God was not a guessing God, but a God of truth. And all his works, spiritual and material, are harmonious. His law of animal life, absolute. So wise a God has certainly placed the remedy within the material house in which the spirit of life dwells. That hits right to the center of this issue, that God and whoever he may be in your, your definition of God, for Dr. Still, designed a body that would heal itself. We have within our physical being the inherent ability to take what we've been given and come out with greater health. And that's really the key for healing much of what is sedentary in our lives. Right. And it's, look, we can get real new agey with that. We can get real, like, deep oh, into we, the we magic with that. totally crunch it out. But that's not the point here. Um, I want to take that line and ground it into something just raw and biologic, uh, just to make it clear that these aren't fanciful ideas to float around within the ivory tower. Right. These are things that... Um, matter at the most visceral level. These are very practical ideas. Right, these and, are primal ideas. And, and you know, it's so basic, it doesn't have to be expensive. We talk at ad nauseum in this country right now about the expense of healthcare. Well, making changes where you get up off your backside and start moving around doesn't have to cost a lot. And honestly, Finding better ways to feed society doesn't necessarily have to cost a whole lot either if we can do it. But changing what we do can actually save significant healthcare expenditures in the long run. Exactly. So let's let's lead with this idea. The manipulation thing, right? The manual treatments, they're designed to um, correct aberrations to structure. Right, because a the assumption, acute, really, acute and chronic changes that can be fixed right immediately. Right, and the assumption is structure equals function. Therefore, if you maintain the structure adequately, like any other good machine, we'll keep ticking on and tooting and all that good stuff. You mean so if we put gas in the car and put oil in the uh, oil pan, the car will still run? Apparently, that's the claim, as heretical as it sounds. <laughs> but since we're using the car for this discussion, at the end of the day, you can have the best mechanic in the world, but if you're driving an old, beat-up piece of nothing, you know what I mean? At some point, the quality of the material has to be taken into consideration. Sure. There's a difference between being made up of, um, let's say, steel versus wrought iron, as far as material, right? Right. And, right. you know, each tool to its purpose. Let's make this a little bit cleaner. If we're talking about cars... You can have a very nice high-end... I'm not much of a car guy. Help me out here on this one. So we're talking about a sports car? Sure. Okay. So you have a, a Ferrari. Let's say a Ferrari. All right. 
So if <laughs> help me here, man. Uh, okay, okay. I see, I see what you're going. So you you've got a Ferrari, and you want that Ferrari to run at its peak performance. You better use a high octane fuel, because the high octane fuel burns at, at different rates, leaves less of a carbon deposit because of the high temperatures at which it burns. You also need to make sure that the oil is appropriate oil that's not. Uh, a suited for a higher performance engine, we're talking a V12 that runs hot, right. will break down and leave sludge. So if you don't put in the, the uh, right t uh, parts to repair it, you don't put in the right lubricants and the right uh, fuels, then the car will no longer perform at its peak performance. My own car is not a Ferrari. <laughs> by any stretch, but I, I drive a Ford Fusion Sport, so it's kind of sporty. But so I, we're family I, I, doctors, guys. Yeah, we're, we're family doctors here. Um, I was driving the car earlier this week, and I got a low tire pressure indication on the dashboard. So I had to take it in to uh, get the, the tires checked today. And um, my tire pressure on the one uh, tire was 26 PSI. It needs to be between 35 and 40 to run appropriately. If it, the tire goes too low to long, you either run the risk of the tire failing altogether and having a blowout, or you run the risk of losing gas mileage. And so I had to make the decision to get a new tire. As a matter of fact, I got two new tires, because that's generally what you do. You don't replace one tire if you can avoid it. And the tread, the, uh, the tread depth was at 430 seconds, which is right there in the yellow near red. For my t car to run at its peak, it needs to have a tread depth at least 5 30 seconds of an inch. And that will improve the gas mileage on the car. That will reduce the risk of tire failure. That will also help the car uh, handle much better. Once you lose that tread depth, then you lose traction. So if you're uh, driving on a wet road, that makes more of a dangerous situation. Same thing with our body. If there we're not go. taking care of ourselves, then we lose that traction and that ability to perform at peak levels. And that's why I pass this one off to you, because <laughs> I don't car good. <laughs> so much appreciated. You're welcome. But that, that's the idea here. It's the quality of the parts themselves makes a difference at the end of the day. You can have the most finely tuned piece of junk in the world that doesn't change the fact that it's a piece of junk. Now, here's the fun part. Mm -hmm. The machines are machines because, well, that's what they do. A car is a car because we built it to be a car. We're not cars. We're people. We're, we're living organisms. We can remodel. We build according to our way. What does that mean? Right. So two big things here. One, the things you eat actually matter. There's this, this uh, it's almost like a truism that we give lip service to. It's you are what you eat. You know what I mean? Right. Is that also our opinion on half of the medical literature? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. We'll fire those shots later. It's oh, okay. Oh, yeah, that's 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 interesting subject by itself. But that goes with anything in life. The quality of what you put in leads to the quality that you get out. Going back to the tire uh, uh, metaphor, you can buy tires that have 60,000-mile warranties. You can buy tires that have 30,000-mile warranties. Right. So do you want to buy a tire every five years? Do you want to buy a tire every two or three years? Right. You, you make that purchase understanding that if you buy a higher-quality tire, you're going to get longer and better performance. And 
better gas mileage and better handling. And this is where it would be really nice to be an Autobot instead of a human. <laughs> Unfortunately, we only have one heart, two lungs, two kidneys, so on and so forth. And we're not Optimus Prime. Exactly. Because who wouldn't want to be Optimus Prime, honestly? Because I want to be Optimus Prime. There you go. But when our heart gives, it's gone unless we do some of the big interventions. We can't just right. get a new heart, at least not easily. The idea of buying the better part in this context breaks down to our food. So there's an argument to be made for omega-3s versus omega-6s, right? A pretty strong argument, right. for you, sure. And you need a good amount of omega-3s, specifically the animal variant of the omega-3, in order to make cells that are supple enough to handle the stresses of day-to-day -day activity. Mm -hmm. Pressure in your blood is shearing, and that shear can tear up parts. If the parts you made are friable and fall apart because of pressure, bad things happen. So do you want the blood vessels and the parts that are supple and bendy and can handle strain, or do you want the cheap knockoff parts that'll crack? What does that mean? What foods are you gonna eat? But that only takes it so far, because you can eat all the right stuff, but if you don't move, what's it gonna do? Our body doesn't exactly, um, it has a blueprint to a degree, right. but it's designed to keep remodeling, re-engineering, it's designed to adapt. So there's two laws that I have a lot of fun with. One is uh, Wolf's Law, Right. which I'll get to in a second, and this idea of neuroplasticity. What do these words mean? These are two sides of a similar coin. There's this idea that the things we do, the patterns we run, end up becoming our form. That sounds really esoteric and philosophical-like. Well, we think about it, uh, you do martial arts, and um, I've done, uh, we've both done a lot of art. We've also done a lot of music and those kinds of things. My wife is a pianist. She's practiced, at one point she was practicing between seven and eight hours a day. She was developing a model, a pattern by which she would play. Now when she sits down at the piano, she doesn't have to think anymore. Right. She just plays because she has set that pattern already into her memory. Right. And that's what we're trying to do. The beauty about Wolf's Law and neuroplasticity is we, no matter what our age, have certain capabilities of remodeling. And we, we need to remodel. We need to be continuously remodeling. It's, it's kind of like you're walking up an escalator that's going down. If you stop walking, you go down, you decompensate. Something about stagnation being Stag death. Stagnation being death. But if you continue to work, it's hard work walking up an escalator going down, but you eventually can continue making progress if you keep at it. That's the Red Queen's Gambit, isn't it? It's, That's exactly. You work as hard as you can for as long as you can to maintain the same place. So you can either, what, give up and just let things fall apart, or you can put in the work and maintain, knowing that the act of maintaining itself is technically noble. That is the incorruptible version. And it's hard. Right. It's, it's not easy, for sure. Right. Especially because, look, it's not like we can just remove a part and install a new one. We don't remodel that way. We build off of what we had. We are our scars, are we not? We are. And th those scars are what makes us strong. Right. It makes us um, healthy. Assuming that they move in the right direction, because if, let's say, you habituate to your so you use the piano example. The one I know is archery, actually, because yes. there's, there's been some really cool like anthropological stuff on this one. Mm -hmm. The English longbow is a beast. Oh, yeah. And it gave the English a significant tactical advantage against heavily armored knights. Indeed. But the English longbow was such a beast that you couldn't just pick it up and draw it. If you or I tried to pull that thing right now, not a damn thing would happen because the pull for that is so substantial, you train for your life to be strong enough to pull it. You train once you're about six years old, I think. And what happens is these archers, so they develop the motor pattern, right? That's the neuroplasticity. 
They learn how to pull, how to position, where mm -hmm. exactly to put their index finger against their uh, side of their cheek to know that they're knocked appropriately and that their arrow right. is true. But if you do that for so many years, not only does your nervous system know where to position itself, your soft tissue, your muscles, your bones, your ligaments will actually grow and layer themselves in such a way to facilitate the motion you do. What does that mean? There's these really cool cadaveric studies of archers. And what ends up happening is in their left hand, the bones get thick. That's a big deal. The bones in the left hand of, got thick. of tension uh, against those bones. Right. And in the right hand, specifically in their index, middle, and ring finger, for, and for my archers out there, you know what those three fingers are for. That's yeah. the fingers used to draw back the bow. They develop yep. bone spurs in their fingertips, little hooks that hook into that string to facilitate that position so they can stay there longer. They've learned, they've morphed into that form. A thick left arm, a spiky right arm so that they can shoot that bow better because they've trained all the life for it. And they've now got they to hold that arrow in the tense form until they've got the aim just where they want it. Right, right. And then they let fly. Right. For the record, we don't say ready, uh, fire in that context. It's loose because, you know, you don't fire an arrow. You loose an no, arrow. Yeah, you let them loose. But let it rip. imagine if that thing goes haywire. Let's imagine something else instead. Instead of you trying to become Mr. Warrior Archer Man, you're on your chair. You're specifically, uh, what's that insult we used to use back in the 90s? Couch potato? Yes. You're a couch potato. Yeah, so couch potato. You got that motor pattern real good because you can plop back, sit on the lazy boy, do your thing, right? I know, I just switched from couch to lazy boy, but you get the idea. Yeah, we got, yeah, we got that. Right, you sit back, you put on your shows, and you do your thing day in, day out, every day after work. You work an office job because why not? Let's make this as nasty of an image as we can. Notice my nasty image is TV in an office space. Imagine what I think about Americana. <laughs> so... <laughs> You do that for just long enough. Get off your enough. backside. Right, right. You begin to adapt to that. That becomes your, your new normal. Your heart realizes, I don't have to work nearly as hard as I thought I did because all this guy's going to do is watch like Everybody Loves Raymond for like the thousandth time. So maybe... So are you, are you admitting to binge watching Everyone Loves Raymond? It's actually himium for me. <laughs> uh, that's how I met your mother for those who are not aware. Um, but... The heart realizes that it doesn't need to be nearly as strong as it does. Mm -hmm. Those parts are expensive. I can use that for some other stuff. Right. So it downgrades the heart. Now the heart is not as strong. And then you habituate to that. You realize in your mind that you don't have to be as fit either. So you start to really settle into that. And imagine doing that for years upon years. Eventually, the parts that maintain your bones, they don't get the feedback to know that the bones have to be strong. Your spine begins to wither. Your spine begins to get strong in the wrong places and weak in the other places. Right. And you end up getting up for the first time and all of a sudden your psoas muscle, the hip muscle, the groin muscle. It gets super tight. It got so used to being in that seated position that the first time you stand up, it's cranking at your spine. Boom, there goes a disc and all of a sudden you're on our table. And your back's killing you. And you and you tell us, well, I don't know what happened. I right. just got up one day and it hurt. Right. We talk about the straw that broke the sedentary man's back. Yes. So. Yes. Wolf's Absolutely. law works in both ways, man. Same thing with the neuroplastic thing. But in the same way that our negligence has led people to become that, the, the sloth thing, knowing that you can remodel is a big deal because that means that what the code written into your bones is something you can edit. It means something you can fix. Right. And, and our responsibility as physicians, not just as osteopathic physicians, but as physicians in general, is to help our patients become empowered to make those changes. Not to just tell them, hey, by the way, you need to eat right and exercise, but give them the tools and, and the components of, of these choices that will allow them to strengthen themselves. Right. I've spent whole patient visits teaching patients how the foods they eat matter and what foods are correct for them, given what I know, 
right? Right. Um, and you would think that that should be easy, but look, if 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 you ever try to change somebody's diet, man, oh, it's 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 difficult. I I have seen patients that only change their diet after something extremely traumatic happens. Exactly. And you, you spend months upon months upon months saying, hey, we need to really fix things. Hey, if you don't fix things, something bad's going to happen. And you finally see them after they've been in the hospital and had something severe happen, and they're like, doc, I need to change my diet. And you're like, well, yeah. Remember, that's what we talked about. Right. Well, I'm ready now that I almost died to change my diet. Right, and good for them for coming to that realization because not everybody does. Right. But how much better could this have been if we didn't have to if you didn't have to pay that price for the wisdom right yeah well and i've been told a smart man learns from his own mistakes a wise man learns from the mistakes of others our duty is to take what we've learned from the mistakes of others and help our patients be wise with their own lives that's the nicest version of preventive medicine i've ever heard actually <laughs> let's let's rock with that when let's, we have to go to the it. next big doctor meeting how's that i like that yeah let's do it let's do it translated wisdom i like that yeah but you think about that the reason our patients are sick the way they are, as far as what we can control, right? Because we can't control them, that's not the point. But what we can control is our skill with our hands. Right. And we can at least tell them what they need to know. But if we never tell them, then why would they do it? Because who would think that you have that much power over your own body, if not the people who train to know everything as possible about the body? And if, you know, if every doc tells them, hey, look, man, this is a terminal disease, diabetes, take your pill, hope for the best, You'll surrender to that because who are you to question that? But what if the doc goes, you know, you can fix this and you mean that and you show them in the conviction in your face that you believe that they can fix this and they buy into that. They go, maybe I can fix this. And now it's your job to give them a move. Well, I, I consider myself as a physician to be also a cheerleader. So when we have patients come in, it's not just, hey, you need to fix this. Otherwise, you're going to die. It's you can fix this. You have the power to fix this. And I'm here to help. Right. I will I walk will, with you down this path. I will walk with you. I will be your companion. I will be your cheerleader. You are the captain of your ship. I'll just make sure I do everything I can to make sure your ship is set to the right destination. Exactly. And uh, set sail. We'll set sail together and we'll work on this. And that's a scary way to practice medicine, by the way. It is. Because it's, one... It's not the most profitable way of doing things, for sure. It takes long to counsel patients. But at the same time, that's kind of what you... That's what we signed up to do. Right. If we wanted to do this osteopathic thing proper, remember, there's more to osteopathy than just the hands. Somebody said that to us, to you quite recently, right? Yes. And yes. as as much shade as I'd love to throw at the idea, no, he's right. There's more to osteopathy than the hands. The trade-off is that means you've got to do the other stuff right, too. Right. And it's a lot of lifestyle work. And if we're not trained for that, if we're not pushing that for our patients, if we're not there cheerleading them, fly, base, whatever then we're doing our job wrong. Well, we do need to give them the tools. You know, we, we, we get them started on the path. We have them come into our office and we get that pain back under control. We get them back into balance from a physical standpoint. But the key is getting their balance back into their lives, get their environment reconnected. And that's extremely difficult because imagine, let's imagine the reason the person, this, is, this shouldn't be too unreasonable, the reason the person doesn't exercise much or eats the, what he eats is because the way his or her work goes, look, they're night shift workers, they only have so much time, they got two right. kids, whatever. So they're they're doing the best they think they know how to do, right? And you're telling them, hey, look, there's a better way. But the trade-off to, the, hey, there's a better way, there's a way to cure whatever you got going on, 
is you're going to have to make a sacrifice. And the sacrifice, at a most literal level, is their current life. And what are they willing to give up to make that sacrifice? I, I think about uh, what we've done from a society standpoint in making food available. I went to medical school in Philadelphia and worked with plenty of really wonderful inner city folks. But we would talk about diet and they would say, well, look, doc, you know, it's great that you want me to eat fruits and vegetables, but I ride the bus. How am I going to get produce home on the bus? When just around the corner, I've got this corner shop that sells chips and hot dogs and it's cheap and I can carry that with me. Everything's in a box. I can put a box in a bag and I can take that home with me. Right. And it doesn't require any work in the kitchen other than adding water or maybe uh, some butter and, and eggs or something. So how do we get the patients to the point that they can have the tools that they need? That's the real key. Right, and that's, that's the humbling and frustrating part because, look, we put on different hats for our, for our day, right? Like when you're dad mode, you're, you're putting on your dad hat. When you're yeah. a doctor, you're putting on your doctor hat. The doctor hat does not have a move for this. Why is that? Because we focus at the individual level. Right. However, let's back up or take, go back into the history of osteopathy a little bit. There's that word we didn't really mess around with too much yet. That's a uh, biogen. Mm-hmm. Have we touched that yet? I feel like we haven't no, touched we that haven't yet. No, we haven't touched that yet. So there's this idea. It's a really elegant idea that everything is kind of layered into itself. What does that mean? That means that the human, right, the individual in front of you, isn't just a human in front of you. That human is a uh, what a composition of cells, of organs, of tissues, of all that type of stuff, a right? Very complex organism, right? But beyond that, in the pathways, right? But beyond that, in the other direction, that human doesn't exist in a bubble. That human exists with a people. The people exist within a community. The community exists within a township, city, state, country, so on and so forth. We the are cr- all part of an, a larger organism, if you will. Right. There's this interwoven version of the wheel of time. Really affected my language, right? Seriously. Everyone There's out there who's not read the Wheel of Time series by Robert Jordan, it's only 15 books. It's worth your time. Each book's about 1,000 pages long. It's really productive. Get it on audiobook. Put it on two and a half times speed. You'll get through it. There you go. But um, can we get sponsorship for that? Uh, he's already dead, so. True. <laughs> so <laughs> I got dark real fast. Um, what was I saying? There's this idea that when the osteopath, and this was uh, the writing from Still. This isn't uh, secondary uh, tertiary conjecture. Still's idea was that the best way to find health is not just to use your hands, but it's to know the level of pathology that you're treating. Right. Because sometimes the problem is at the level of what soon became understood as microbes, right? The blood flow, the lymph. came into its own about the time that Dr. Still was really beginning to emphasize and and elucidate his osteopathic theories. Exactly. Sometimes the problem is at the the level of machinery. It's our joints, our arteries, our ligaments. Sometimes it's at the level of the parts, right? Like the quality of the machinery itself. Sometimes it's at organism levels when we're talking about uh, dietary choices, exercise choices. It's, it's really an interaction of all of those things. Right, but it doesn't end there. Sometimes the problem is at the level of the community. Societal levels, for right. sure. Because here's the cool thing about uh, Still's whole you know, nature is good, we're one with nature. Mm-hmm. That was not lip service, man. No, I mean, we, we've talked in, in prior episodes about how your gut bacteria um, varies according to season. So seasonal vegetables and seasonal foods are really attuned for the gut bacteria of that season to be the most effective at giving us nutrition. Exactly. There's, you know, ebbs and flows, waves and times and cycles and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But there's this idea that 
the human individual isn't necessarily always the place we need to focus. Sometimes the problem is bigger or smaller than that. The problem we're talking about, if we're talking about environmental level pathology, this is the realm of public health and policy things. And the frustrating part about that for our job is, look, I can do as much good as I can with the individual, but if we're going to attack the environment, that's, that's officially not Dr. Turf anymore. That's something else. And given what we were charged to be, given that our job was to look at the biogen, not the person in the old writings, and to fix at the level of the biogen, I think Mr. Founderman technically commanded us to do better. And we can do better. We can work together as osteopathic physicians with our patients to give them the tools to alter their environment, and in altering their environment, improve their health. We'll help them find their problems, fix their problems, and then we'll leave it alone. And thanks again for joining us for Rolling Bones. The next episode, we're going to talk, go a little more depth about posture in a particular condition called upper cross syndrome. Talks about shoulders. You're going to love it. We'll, we'll join with us then. Thank you for listening to Rolling Bones, the osteopathic podcast. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Rolling Bones Pod or shoot us an email at rollingbonespod at gmail.com. That's R-O-L-L-I-N, Bones, P-O-D. Rollin' Bones is brought to you by the University of North Texas and Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine. Producer Rob Upchurch and medical advisor Dr. Saj Survey contributed to this podcast. Medicine is a constantly changing science and art with various approaches from practitioner to practitioner. This podcast presents the Rollin' Bones doctor's views of osteopathic medicine and osteopathic manipulative treatment and will be as evidence-based as possible. Comments, suggestions, or correction of errors are welcome. No money from drug or device companies is accepted. By listening to this podcast, you agree to not use this podcast as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including but not limited to patients that you are treating. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. This applies to the hosts, guests, and contributors to the podcast. Under no circumstances shall James Aston, Dante Paredes, Saj Survey, podcast producers, the University of North Texas, Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine, or any guests or contributors to the podcast be responsible for damages arising from use of the podcast. This blog or podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast. This podcast is HIPAA compliant. While you may give your email address to make comments or requests, we will never share your email address or contact information with any third parties without your explicit permission.